You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. We're continuing a sermon series through the book of Hosea this morning. We're picking up in chapter 5 this morning. And so if you are newer to the church or if you are wanting to otherwise get caught up in what we're doing, everything's listed online under resources, under current sermon series. You can listen to get, kind of get caught up. We're not too far gone at this point. But at this point, we are deep in the throes of the prophetic uh, judgments and disciplines that are spoken over the nation of Israel. Um, and, and we talked about a little bit um, over the course of the last several sermons how this prophecy is unique among all of the prophecies of the Old Testament because God asks Hosea to embody a portion of his message to not just speak them but to live it out through his own life. And so we've seen a whole bunch of gospel theater played out in the life of Hosea and then we've, we're kind of now moving into the thick of the message that is meant to flow from his lips. So here in chapter 5, I, because there's a good amount of text, uh, what I want to do is preach it in segments. This first segment I want us to focus on is verse 1 and 2. And it begins like this, where Hosea says, Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. Verse 2, And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. And so our chapter, chapter 5, it opens up with this real serious tone, tone where, where Hosea is imploring the religious and the political leaders of Israel to listen. Three times he uses different words, calling them to listen. He says there's a call to hear, to pay attention, and to give an ear. It's this solemn and direct address that divine justice is about to pour down, that it is imminent and that it is certain. The religious leaders that are represented in this passage are represented by that word priests, and the political leaders are represented by that term house of the king. And it shows that the leaders of the nation of Israel were found guilty in the sight of God. You can see this is an extension from what Pastor Brett was preaching last week, that God has seen the wicked deeds of the spiritual leaders uh, and the national leaders of the house of Israel, and he's causing his judgment and his discipline to fall down on them because they are leading the people astray. In fact, they're described as snares and nets in this passage. It's a picture from like hunting and trapping. Like he's, he's holding the leaders accountable for ensnaring his lambs, for ensnaring his people. And so as, this, as we see in focus that the leaders, we also see him bring into focus some specific locations. He names in verse 1 and 2 the, the areas of Mizpah and Tabor. They're referred to as places where the religious leaders were setting these snares. Mizpah is translated as watchtower, and it's a significant location for a bunch of events in the Old Testament. I'm just going to lead you through a few of them so that you can kind of get a sense for why they're named here. 
In Genesis, we read that Mizpah is the location where Jacob and Laban made their covenant of peace. And in Judges, it's the location where the Israelites strategized against the tribe of Benjamin during the Civil War. And so Mizpah has been a place where through, through uh, Israelite history, it was a place of unity and a place of division. And here it's back in focus in the 8th century BC under the reign of King Jeroboam II. By the time of Hosea, it appears that the place of Mizpah has been one of the dedicated places for worshiping these pagan idols. Then he mentions Mount Tabor, on the other hand. It's this hill near the Jezreel Valley. It was a very fruitful and prosperous valley, and so it seems to me likely that it was one of the locations where they were maybe worshiping the fertility gods, but we don't know that for certain. But two locations that were traditionally affiliated with communion with God and unity among the people are now being used to commune with the pagan gods and the, and the spiritual leaders and the national leaders of Israel have led and overseen that change. The audience in Hosea's day would have obviously known what was specifically happening there, but I don't think that's what's important for us. What's important for us is that what was not happening there was what ought to have been happening there. And so I got this picture in my mind as I, as I saw the opening to this where it's like, just take, take uh, Tabor and Mizpah out of it. Just say, a place of the Lord, a place precious to the Lord, a place that the Lord gave, a place where the Lord gave decree about how he was to be worshipped and how he was to be communed with, that those places were being used to commit spiritual adultery on the Lord. So it would be like the Lord addressing Pastor Adam and saying, in that place called Mercy's Door, where it was meant to be a place of communion and fellowship and, and gospel centrality, you have instead led the sheep to slaughter, you, you, and, you, and you've done what is wicked in my sight. And so this is a big deal to our God. In verse 2, Hosea is highlighting Israel's rebellion. He uses this word revolters here. It implies a deep level of resistance to the law of God. It's not just that they were, uh, they were forgetting it, but that they were rebelling or revolting against it. They were pretty hardcore in their sin, and we've obviously outlined that at length so far. But Jesus uses the word, go, or God uses the word going deep into slaughter, going deep into slaughter as the behavior that they're doing, and we've got to meditate on that a little bit, guys. Like, we, like he's talking about their spiritual adultery of the, of the priests and the, and the national leaders as going deep into slaughter. What could that mean? At minimum, it would mean to me a reference to the sacrifices that they were making to their pagan gods because that was a big part of the ritual. They were literally slaughtering living things, God's living things, unto someone other than the living God that created them. And this is awful in God's sight. But more than that, where their job was to build a hedge of protection around the people and to lead the people into safety before God, instead what we find is that they are leading the very people to slaughter, to their own destruction. It's a very wicked thing that, that Hosea is breaking into here with his prophecy but what we see is that in the depths of their darkness, in the depths of their rebellion, that God makes this promise of discipline. It's important that we see the word choice that the Lord God uses here. The revolters have gone deep into their slaughter, verse 2, but I will discipline all of them. Now, this verse is the launchpad verse for everything I'm going to preach this morning. 
that while the people have plunged into their wickedness, while they have plunged into the depths of the slaughter, the Lord God says, but I will discipline all of them. Think on it for a minute with me. What word other than but do you expect to read there? I'll tell you what I expected to read was so. Because they have plunged into the depths of their sorrow, of their, of their, of their slaughter, so I will discipline all of them. Or, and I will discipline all of them. But instead we read, but I will discipline all of them. And when he says, but, it implies a turn. That, there, that there's a complete shift from what he was just talking about to something new. And this is where I want to hold out to you that the theme of our sermon this morning is the difference between discipline and destruction. The difference between discipline and destruction and how we can see shadows of goodness in the judgments of God to bring his people back unto himself. He says, despite the fact that the people have plunged themselves into their idolatry, despite the calamity of their sin, despite the seriousness of the wickedness of the leaders leading others to sin, but God is going to discipline them all. We see in it a shadow, I think, of the phrase that's shared with Proverbs 31, that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. It's a painful and corrective love but it's a love and it's a love that Israel in this period of their history has forgotten and he is going to draw them to repentance by his steady hand of discipline. Now, as we talk about discipline this morning, I think that it's important that we make that distinction between what, is, what does the Lord mean when he talks about discipline as uh, contrasted with what he means when he talks about punishment. See, when we talk about punishment or the just punishment for sin, what we're talking about is death because the wages of sin are death and we have all sin, none are righteous, no, not one. And God said from the very beginning to our first ancestors in the Garden of Eden that if we, the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely what? Die. And yet what he talks about is, but I will discipline them, not destroy them, which God demonstrated whether through the, through the flood or whether through uh, times where he poured out his justice and his judgment on specific cities or specific people in specific times, that he is within his holy and just right to execute punishment and justice at any time, that, that he is no respecter of persons where, where life is his to give and take away, that he is not declaring destruction upon his people, but I will discipline them. So I want you to have that stored away in your heart as we continue to read. Hosea chapter 5, verse 3, God says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord See, two, see, two really big things revealed about God in these two verses. The first is his complete knowledge of their and our sinful state. And the other is the peril of their spiritual condition. You see, he says first that they are not hidden from him. And then he, he names and he declares, he speaks out loud their sin. 
And then he addresses what's within them. He says that it's not just the acts of whoredom, of course, this being a metaphor for their spiritual adultery, chasing after other gods. He says it's not just about what you're doing with your hand that I'm observing, but that this has, is flowing from a spirit of spiritual adultery that is within you. And so God is revealing about himself that he not only sees the deeds of our hands, but that he sees the state of our heart, the state of our spiritual condition. In verse 4, the prophet shows this awful state of affairs. He shows the consequences of God's rebellious deeds or that they've ensnared them in a hardening way, that it's actually hindering them from returning to God. It says their deeds do not permit them to return to their God because the spirit of whoredom is now within them. They don't even know the Lord is what God declares. It's made them stupid. It's made them silly. It's made them look at the testimony of everything which declares the goodness and the majesty and the glory of God and, and just put them in a stupor where they're, they're blind to it and they're functioning like he isn't even there so that they can't return to him. And so we see emphasized here that God is omniscient and omnipresent over it all, right there during all of it, but they can't even see him. And that it has a hardening effect on the sinner, a stupefying effect on the sinner, where despite God being right there, peering into the midst of it all, they can't tell their left hand from their right. It makes me think about some of the stuff that Paul wrote in his letters to the Corinthians, making an appeal for the church to be separate from the world, not to be yoked together with unbelievers and with idols, where we start to see uh, in the New Testament church this emphasis on separating yourself, living separate from the world of idolatry. But one of the most misused words in my whole Christian life, I would say, has been this word sanctification. Biblically, the word sanctification is a word that merely means to be set apart, to be set apart by God for God. And sanctification is a work that God does when he sets his people apart for holiness. He's the one who set the people Israel apart and covenanted with them and pledges to discipline them when they err and when they go astray. He's the one who set you apart by your baptism in the Holy Spirit where you were united with Christ by a work of God, by placing faith in you, uniting you with his life, death, and resurrection by personally indwelling you. He sets us apart. He sanctifies us. But then we read all of this stuff in the New Testament where it seems like we are to be chasing after holy living, upright living, Christ-like living, walking in the image of Christ, things like that. In fact, sometimes you'll even hear commands for you to sanctify yourself. Well, sanctifying yourself is the practice of taking your feet and putting them where God has put your spirit. Because you have been sanctified by the Lord, set apart by him, apart from anything that you do, now you dwell and you walk in your bodily existence in the places where the Lord has put your spirit. You live distinct and separate from the world. 
Well, what we see in Hosea's day in 8th century BC is that the nation of Israel, the leaders of Israel, have worked so hard to integrate themselves with the, with the nations around them, and they've sought their prosperity and their hope and their rest and their comfort in the things that the world has to offer that now they can't even see God because I've made the world my God, and I've made my, my strategies my God. And so we see a great warning against this, that we're not to place our hope in the dead and dying world, but we are to place our hope in the Lord God. Continuing into verse 5, 6, and 7, we read, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They've dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they've borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. There's a lot of confusing language in here, so I'm going to take my time. In verse 5, we see the proclamation that the pride of Israel, of Israel testifies to his face. So their pride is a witness against Israel before God. In biblical language, pride generally is talking about self-reliance, or putting your reliance on yourself rather than on God. And here we're seeing Israel's arrogance and their stubborn disobedience, which is actually in and of itself proving their guilt. That's what we mean when we say that their pride is testifying to his face. See, sometimes we think like, goodness, if I confess, if I'm contrite, if I tell the truth about where I'm at, if I show my neediness, if I talk about my, my sin, well, that's what testifies before God to my guilt. And in one sense, that's true. You're testifying to your guilt. But you remember all the labor that we did through the letters of John to talk about confession of sin as a confession of faith? That the, you know, I, I, during my family devotional time, I was sharing this at GC uh, the other night, maybe three or four nights ago, I was leading my kiddos through a devotional, and we just read one sentence, Father, I have sinned. And I asked them the question, how does calling God Father and recognizing that you are an heir son of the Father change the way that you confess sin to him, as opposed to if you were a criminal standing before God the judge? And I had a sense for what I was looking for when I asked the question, but the Holy Spirit had the right answer, and he put it in my Boaz. He's 11. And Bo said to me, well, if I'm a guilty criminal standing in front of God, then when I confess my sin, I've got to confess it a certain way. I've got to try to make it look not as bad as it was. I've got to try to explain it. I've got to try to help him see how it wasn't really my fault and all that because I'm trying to get out from a punishment that I know is coming for me. But if he's my father, I can just tell him the whole thing. And I was like, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, that. There's this picture of pride testifying to your guilt in such a way where you're testifying to remaining guilty, that you are not taking the pathway out of your guilt, the covering of your sin in your shame, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, by confessing your sin as a confession of faith that Christ can pardon you and has pardoned you for your sin. 
but in your pride, in your self-reliance, in your I'm going to fix this, I'm going to make it right, you actually, in your pride, are testifying before the face of God to your guilt. And in this weird upside-down way, it's in our lowliness that we are made right with God. Then in, uh, also in verse 5, we see the introduction of Judah to the story. Up until now, it's been all northern kingdom stuff. You guys remember that Jeroboam II is reigning over a divided Israel. There's the northern kingdom in this passage called Ephraim or Israel, and then there's Judah, the southern kingdom. And this has all been about northern kingdom so far, but now Judah's just been lumped in in verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. So Judah is finally named. The southern kingdom is not off the hook. But look at the way they're talked about. They're talked about as stumbling with the northern kingdom, that the seed of the rebellion was in the north and that it was going to permeate and take the south with them. And this is the nature of a little leaven filling the whole loaf, that sin might have been more rampant in the northern kingdom and God's judgment may have been more imminent in the northern kingdom, but had started to take root in the southern kingdom as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about this because what I've seen sometimes, in, especially in the context of gospel community discussions, is what we want to do is we want to take Israel and these Old Testament prophecies and stories and we want to use them as an allegory for the United States of America rather than using Israel as an allegory for the people of God. And so Israel is an allegory for the people of God, not a, not a nation, but for a set-aside, sanctified people. So today, that's you. You, church, are true Israel, right? Because you've been made true Israel by the circumcision of the heart, by a work of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about this at length. Well, if you are true Israel, then what God has to say to his people here, he has to say to his people here. Okay, these are, this is a message for his people, not for a nation, but for his people. And so we start thinking things like when we read this, well, see, this is what happens. This is why we need to fight the culture wars and keep sin from spreading from the north to the south and all of that so that we can preserve the nation. But no, what we read instead is that when sin is allowed to pervade, especially from within the leadership in the church, that when sin is permitted to, to, to grow within the body of Christ, that it does great damage within the people of God. So we've been talking about this at GC just a little bit um, in some sidebar conversations where uh, what, I, what I'm hoping that we can correct here is that our job is not to go out and do war against a culture to make it appear more Christian, but that when you are engaging the lost world, you do that by what? Evangelism. By giving them the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that through salvation the Holy Spirit could take up residence in their lostness and change literally everything not giving them a set of laws in order that they can fail at it just like you do, but giving them the gospel that they can be indwelled by the Holy Spirit just like you are who changes everything. So if in the culture war we engage that war with, with spreading the gospel, with evangelism, how do we do war within the church? Well, by spreading the gospel, number one, and number two, church discipline. Church discipline. We do church discipline within the church, and we do evangelism outside the church. We take this from 1 Corinthians 5, chapter, 
or chapter 5, verse 9, on down through somewhere, where Paul starts talking about, when I told you guys that you needed to separate yourselves from the sexually immoral and the idolaters and all of that, I wasn't talking about the world because God would have to take you out of the world in order to obey me on that. I'm talking about within the church, that within the church, it's significant that we do war against sin because we are meant to live a life of distinction from the world, if that makes any sense to you. Then in uh, verse 6, we see that Israel and Ephraim are going to realize their plight. They're not going to be brought to repentance, though. They're going to recognize their plight. They're going to see the Lord taking from them, and they're going to seek him, and he will not be found. That's, of course, a big reversal from Jeremiah 29, where God promised that he would be found if the people sought him with their whole heart. But here, they're seeking him with ulterior motives, likely to avoid the consequences of their sin rather than sincere repentance, and they will find that God has withdrawn from them. And then verse 7 reads, a damning result of their faithlessness. They've been engaging in acts of idolatry that led them to bearing alien children. And that could mean several different things. It might be literal. As they've interwed with the pagan nations. But I think more likely, when I think of the term alien children and all the allegory that we've seen so far in Hosea about the children of the woman who he is accusing of going out and playing the harlot and and committing spiritual adultery is that the children are alien to God. They don't even know him. He's talking about a people within his sanctified, set-apart people group who are foreign to him, who he, and he is foreign to them. He says, in their acts of disobedience, they've gone out and they've born alien children, not natives, people who are not native to the goodness of God. And so in, in declaring their, their discipline, God says, the new moon shall devour them. The new moon is significant in Israelite worship. It marks the beginning of the uh, month in the Hebrew lunar calendar. And God had given in Numbers 10 and Numbers 28 that there were specific offerings and ceremonies to be done uh, during the new moon at the, at the beginning of the month. And now what God is saying is that that, that that time of the month that is meant to be marked by these offerings made to me where you blow the trumpet over the offerings and all of that, now that same new moon instead is going to devour you. That rather than be restorative to you, it's going to devour you. Now, I don't know what was going on at this time. Very likely, they were already taking those, that time of the year that was meant to be making sacrifices and offerings to God and making them to false idols instead, and that is what was devouring them. That under the new moon, rather than worshiping their God, they were worshiping the pagan idols to their own destruction. But also, God's judgment had said that on account of their sin, that he was going to remove the pillar from them, that he was going to take away their places of worship, and he was going to exile them into the Assyrian kingdom. And so, at the very least, we also know that that's going to devour them, that they were, there will no longer be that communion with God under the new moon. They have removed from themselves their opportunity to commune with God. So what I want to emphasize in verses 5 to 7 is the difference between my sin didn't work and my sin put Jesus on the cross. The difference between my sin didn't work and my sin put Jesus on the cross. 
You see, they're going to seek the face of God when they realize that their sin didn't work. When they were believing that their sin was working, and that's how I got here, and that's why I'm so prosperous, and that's why the national boundaries have been restored, and that's why the land is flowing with milk and honey, and that's why my military is so strong, and my alliances are awesome. Well, that was because of the work of my own hands. Remember what Jeroboam the first did is he kicked the priesthood out of the northern kingdom, and they scattered to Judah and to Jerusalem, and he appointed his own priest system and his own sacrificial altars and all of that, and it was working. It was working. They saw a season of prosperity unlike any time since King Solomon. And when it was working, there was no dismay to be found. But as the Lord brings his discipline upon them, they start to realize my sin's not working, and that brings them to despair. And they start to seek the Lord not because they are contrite and not because of sincere repentance, but because my sin didn't work. And that's distinctly different from the heart of repentance that says, my sin put my Lord on a cross. You see, we don't primarily lament our sin on account of the, of the wreckage that it brings in our own lives or even the damage that it does to other people, although looking square in the face, the consequences of your sin is significant. But do you recognize that when you sin, that you are willfully engaging in that which put your Savior on the cross. That will produce a heart of contrition. We also see that they're seeking God in a crisis. And so I thought that it would be at least fitting for me to invite you to consider whether or not you are, are, are sincerely engaging in a day-by-day walk with the Lord or if your relationship with the Lord is crisis-fueled. Do I primarily call upon the name of the Lord when my sin's not working anymore? Where if, when it's working, I prefer my sin. When it's not working, I'll give God a try. Because this is the state that Israel finds herself in, and the Lord says, on that day, I will not answer her. But not because he's forsaken her. Not even because he's angry. Because you'll remember, the point of it all is that on that day, he declared in chapter 2, they will turn from their other lovers and they will say, I shall return to my first husband for it was better when I was with him. All of this is, is unto their repentance. We found verse 8. I'm going to do 8 through 12 here. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he's determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. And so God's judgment is declared against both Ephraim and Judah in these verses. In verse 8, you got this military tone. He's calling for, like, arms through the imagery of blowing horns and trumpets. And he names some specific towns, Gibeah, Ramah, and Bethaven. These are all strategic borderlands in the ancient nation of Israel. They've got historic significance, and they symbolize the totality of the judgment that is coming. I'll tell you a little bit about what I read about each of these locations. 
Gibeah is located in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. It's notable because it was the hometown of Saul, who was the first king of Israel. We read that in 1 Samuel. And it's also infamous because of the event that's recorded in Judges 19, where some men from Gibeah led a war in which the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out altogether by the other tribes of Israel. So in my view, when I was reading about that, it seems to me that when Hosea says, we follow you, O Benjamin, he's referring to those events, events in which the people of Israel were responsible for almost wiping out their own people. In this same area called Gibeah, he says, we follow you, O Benjamin. Ramah was also a border town in Benjamin's territory north of Jerusalem. It is best known as the hometown of the prophet Samuel, and it served as a military hotspot a bunch of different times in the Old Testament. And so by bringing them up in this passage, he's inferring in my mind that war is coming. And it was. And Bethaven is a play on words. It's a name that means house of wicked vanity. I like that. And it's God speaking contempt in a reference to the place called Bethel, which means house of God. And so the place Bethel called house of God, he's now calling house of wicked vanity. And it had been that before. Bethel was a site where the Israelites once erected a golden calf for worship during Jeroboam's reign in 1 Kings chapter 12. And so by highlighting each of these locations, the point is that they would have known what he was talking about and that it's knowable some things about these cities and why they were called out specifically during this time. But the point is, is that God cares about what his people are doing in the places that he has set apart for them. In verse 9, we see uh, that Ephraim is going to become a desolation. He says uh, he is going to make known what is sure, which means it's certain. And this is like not great because you'll remember that uh, and a lot of times when a prophecy is given, it's like repent or this is happening. And instead we're reading this is happening. Full stop, this is happening. And it was going to happen pretty quick here for the northern kingdom. And then there's this new metaphor given in verse 10 for Judah where he says that they become like one who moves the landmark. And this is an accusation of infringing on the ancient boundary lines. It's not super important. But in Deuteronomy 19 and 27, God gave law about moving ancient boundary marks. So when you would inherit a land that was given to you from a previous generation, he strictly forbade that you would move those landmarks that, that, that marked out the parcels of land that you were to be receiving. And so there were wicked ones who, when they would inherit a land, the land they inherited wasn't enough and they'd take that landmark and they'd try to move it and they would advance and change and move the boundaries that God had given. And in this I hear a sober warning, at least for me, which is that when you talk about the goodness and all the promises that you have inherited in Christ Jesus, when you think about the promises of God on your life, church, and you think to yourself, I need just a little bit more, which we know is really us saying we need less, we want less, but, but in the moment we're believing, I need more. I need more. What God has given me, the, the, the boundary lines have not fallen in pleasant places. The God does not know what he's doing. What he has for me is not sufficient. I need to move the landmark, and we start wanting to do that, and we start doing that. What we find is that we move it further and further into, for metaphor's sake, lands of idolatry. 
And in order to push out our borders, we need to intermix with the world, which we'd been set apart from. But within the boundary lines that God has drawn for you, he himself dwells there. And to claim that you need to move that landmark is to claim that God himself is not enough. And you will find that the other things that you are turning to, they bring wreckage. They bring desolation. It's a grave sin. And God says he's going to pour out his wrath like water. In verse 11, Ephraim is described as being oppressed and crushed. More wrath from the previous verse. He says it's on account of her filth, referring to the idolatry. And then in verse 12, he calls his judgment like that of a moth and dry rot. These are infestations that like slowly and unassumingly just kind of eat away and destroy cloth and wood. It highlights how God's judgment can seem slow It can seem overlooked, but it persistently and surely undermines the kingdoms of the ancient world and it undermines your little kingdoms when you try to set yourself up and your little idols up. The Lord chooses it away. But this is the difference between discipline and destruction. You see, dry rot and the moth, for many of us, we, we call out, it makes me think of, of the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. We, we, we hear a, a conversation recorded between Habakkuk and his God, and he's shaking his fist at God, in essence, and he's looking out at all the rampant sin within the land of Israel, and he's like, how long, O oh God, will you allow this to happen? And the Lord responds to Habakkuk, and he says, don't worry, I am sending another nation to come and judge this. And then Habakkuk is like, wait a minute, how can you use a nation that's more wicked than we are to judge our sin? And then God's like, don't worry, I'm going to judge them too. And, that, and then like Habakkuk is like, I praise you alone, O God, you know. <laughs> but the nature of the thing is that we see sometimes that God's justice seems to be slow moving. And when it's against somebody else's sin, it makes us want to shake our fist. But when it's with our own sin, we're grateful that it's like a moth or like a dry rot, and not like a fiery inferno that destroys in a moment. But that through advancing the oppression of our sin, by oppressing our spirit and our spiritual adultery, he produces in us a response, and that response is repentance. If the wages of sin are death, well, a moth is not death. Dry rot is not death. You can cut out the dry rot and bring the tree back to life again. You can eradicate the moth. And the people know this at some level because at first the hand of God, the oppression of God, isn't so strong that they think they can't evade it without his help. And this is where we see their misplaced dependence in verses 13 to 14. God says, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. Verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Woof. We see Israel's, Israel's and Judah's misguided solution to the problem. They call on Assyria and the king, they see things start to go poorly and they think to themselves, that's a good thing we built these alliances. 
ahead of time. It's a good thing we did all this work to, to neighbor up with these other nations and other gods because, man, things are not going real well right now as they start to spiral into the judgment of God. But their problem was a spiritual problem, and they thought that it was in a worldly problem, and so they saw their predicament, and they looked to Assyria, and they call on the great king. It's probably the Assyrian king. I was reading about it in 2 Kings 15, where uh, it looks like Menahem, the king of Israel, paid a tribute to Tiglath-Pileser III. I'm going to test you on that. And uh, he was the king of Assyria at the time, and he calls on him to help stabilize their reign and to prepare for the uprisings and the external threats that are coming against them. And we saw that, so they're literally turning to the foreign power that is going to be the one that conquers them. The one that wanted to devour them was the one they thought would save them, and the one that would save them is the one they forgot was there at all. And this is the nature of all sin. We drink so deeply of wells that are poisoned and they are killing us. And we think, if I just drink a little bit more, then I'm going to be okay. And like I've been preaching for several weeks here, guys, if the Lord in his goodness has caused you to taste the bitterness of the idolatry in your life in order that you might turn from it and repent and go back to the fountain of living water, rejoice because that is his hand, that is his hand of care for you. And so when the dry rot and the when the dry rot and the moth isn't working, God says that he's going to present himself as a lion, threatening to attack both Ephraim and Judah. So fearful imagery. Our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. It's this picture of an unstoppable force pulling away the meat and walking out, like leaving the bones there and walking off. It's a horrifying thought. It says, I, even I, will go and tear away. And nobody will rescue them out of my hand. This is the thing, is that for a lot of us, if we're hanging out on outside the walls of Christianity and we're believing that like we, we, we're getting some sense for what sin is, for some sense for our guilt, but we're misdiagnosing the problem as a spiritual one. And so we want to start, start fixing ourselves up and we start turning to some things other than the Lord in order to be our rescue. Well, the Lord has said, I will not permit anyone to rescue you from me. Like the craziness of the gospel is that God has saved us from himself. It was his judgment that stood against us. It was his wrath that burned against sin. It was only his grace and his mercy which could appease his judgment and his wrath. He came for you. He intercedes for you. He sent his only son to live the sinless life that you were meant to live, to die the death that you deserve to die, and to rise again from the grave, conquering sin and death on your behalf, church, not because of anything good in you, but because of something good in him. And he applies that salvation to you by faith alone, not by you looking to these other things, not even by you cleaning yourselves up. It is going to be by his grace alone. And this is why we're going to see in chapter 6 next week that regarding this lion who tears away, Hosea says that the people will say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. 
if he has caused you to feel the tearing away of your idolatry at great cost to yourself in this life, rejoice because he has brought you to the place where today you can repent and turn to him and call on him for your salvation. And this lion of Judah is the lamb of salvation like like John the Baptist said when he walked towards those waters, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only one who can save from God the Lion is God the Lamb. And that takes us to my favorite verse in the chapter, verse 15, the very end. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. See, when God declares this judgment, that's got to be the worst of them all. He's going to hide his face. He's going to hide his face from them. He's going to go away to his place from them. That's got to be the worst judgment of them all. But it's aimed at provoking reconciliation. It's aimed at provoking restoration. It's aimed at provoking repentance. Even in God's disciplines and judgments, he's calling the people, come back to me, come back to me. And we on the other side of the cross have this blessed assurance that where they failed again and again and again to return to the Lord, ultimately God sent himself on a rescue mission to come to you when you would not come to him. See, he doesn't wait for you to make the first move. And this is where we need to know the distinction between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. The righteousness of God, friends, to Israel was external to them. Their wickedness, their spirit of whoredom, as Hosea called it, that was what was internal to them. They were inherently and intrinsically sinful, just like you and I, from birth, just corrupted by sin, unable to see our own hands, to know our right hand from our left. We were, we were stupid in our sin. The righteousness of God was external to them, and it was observed through practices and rituals and rites and religion, and, and, the, and the weight of the law ultimately crushed them to the point that they had to call out, we can't do it. And it turns out that that was one of the primary uses of the law, that they would come to see that for them to be made right with God, they were going to need him to take what was external to them and make it internal to them. And that's what's true of you, the New Testament church. The holiness of God is no longer external to you. In fact, it is the unholiness, the spirit of whoredom, that is external to you. Remember the promise from chapter 2 in Hosea where he said, I will remove the name of the Baals from their lips. That was his promise, that he was going to go to the idolater and he himself was going to pursue her and take the spirit of adultery out of her. That was something God said he was going to do. But to do it, he had to replace the spirit of adultery with his own spirit. And that's what makes you the New Testament church, that the spirit of holiness and righteousness is native to you. It's natural to you. It's internal to you. So that now when you sin, you are doing what is unnatural rather than what is natural. It's, an, oh, it's a grand display of the old flesh which has been put to death by Christ. But in your new nature, you are perfectly holy in the sight of God. Praise be to him alone. So they acknowledge their guilt and they seek my face. And that is the nature of all discipline, is the redemptive aim. And so I close with this quote from C.H. Spurgeon, where he said, 
I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. The discipline of God is meant to throw you and cast you upon him. He's not aiming to destroy you. He is not aiming to pour out his wrath upon you. you if you are his, his sacred, his sacred set-apart child, then all of his work in your life, even when you sin, is unto your restoration. It's for you, and it's for your good, and so we thank him for it, and ultimately we respond with repentance. So I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask you to consider where it is that you need to call on the Lord in your need, and we'll do that together as one body.